thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Um, you love the world of science, so what's rocked your boat this week? There's a very interesting paper published this week in the journal Cell. It's by researchers at the University of uh, Texas. Um, this is Andrew Piper and his colleagues. And they've been looking at the problem of how to make new brain cells. Now, the world of brain science has been rocked in the last 10 years or so because scientists had thought that the brain couldn't make new nerve cells. What you were born with had to last a lifetime. But then a number of experiments got done where people started to inject various chemicals that could label cells that were growing and dividing. And they were really gobsmacked when they saw that the brain still nonetheless, despite this claim that nerve cells couldn't be made in adulthood, in these individuals who often suffer as, uh, with cancer actually and were, gi were given drugs that could label up cells for various other reasons, they found new nerve cells being born in the brain. And it's now become a mainstream area of research that the brain can make in limited areas of the nervous system new nerve cells. And what's really interesting is that these new nerve cells appear to be able to promote recovery of certain bits of the nervous system. For instance, if a person suffers with depression, when you give them an antidepressant drug like Prozac, what this appears to do is to increase the numbers of these new nerve cells that get made and the ones that survive, it increases the number that survive and then wire themselves into the nervous system. So it's almost like the brain is repairing itself and you make that repair better by giving antidepressant drugs. Well, researchers are wondering whether there are other ways that you can promote and provoke the survival of these nerve cells to treat other disorders, like, for instance, Alzheimer's disease, which is caused by the loss of nerve cells in an ageing brain. And what this group of researchers at the University of Texas uh, Southwestern Medical Center have managed to do is they started with 200,000 individual drug molecules, which they rationalized down to about 1,000. And they then began putting these chemicals into the brains of mice and then measuring how many new nerve cells were produced in these mice and how many of them survived. And they found this chemical, which is called P7C3. It's got that name because it's an experimental compound. But this chemical can strongly promote the survival of these new nerve cells in the brain. And they were able to show that in old animals, because just like humans, if you take a rat and make it elderly, it suffers a loss of memory and its cognitive processes become a little less good. If you put these animals on this agent, which you can give as a, as a liquid they can drink, then it significantly improved their cognitive function much better than animals that were controls, that weren't treated. And this strongly suggests that we might be able to use an agent like this to treat people who have problems like Alzheimer's disease. So rather than just chemically manipulating the brain, 
bit like a sticking plaster, which is what anti-Alzheimer's disease drugs do at the moment. Mm -hmm. We might be able to use these sort of kinds of chemicals as a sort of cellular replacement therapy because they boost up the number of stem cells that turn into nerve cells in the damaged brain, therefore making good some of the damage. Starting off with our questions, could Dr. Chris explain why is a digital radio or TV broadcast some three or four seconds behind the analogue signal of the same broadcast and when the analogue signal is turned off for good, how will we receive an accurate time signal? Or maybe it will be news at ten and a bit. Chris? There is a very significant delay in digital processing. And that's because of that word P, processing. In order to make a digital radio or television signal, what you have to do is you take the analogue signal, this is quite literally the waves going up and down the electrical signals in wires, and you take a special computer system that is a bit like if you were to go to the beach and measure the heights of the waves against the pier and then write down those heights very, very quickly, many, many times a second. From the numbers you'd written down, you could go away and draw a graph recreating every single wave on a piece of graph paper. Well, that's what the computer program does. It takes the analogue wave signal, the sound waves going into electrical waves, and it converts them into a digital signal, a digital representation, a system of noughts and ones of that original analogue signal of my voice, for example. That signal is then broadcast, and a digital radio receives that system of noughts and ones and then it knows the code that was used to produce that system of noughts and ones and it reverses the process and it rebuilds from that nought and one code what the original analogue wave looked like, rather like you taking that, this, that system of, of numbers and then plotting a graph on your graph paper. It's doing exactly that with the radio, so it turns it back into an electrical signal, which has got waves, analogue waves, and that's then fed to a speaker, which turns those electrical waves into sound waves that you can hear. Now, because of the processing, because you've got to run that through a computer system to turn it into that digital pattern and then decode it out of that digital pattern and turn it back into analogue again, there's all those extra processing steps and this adds a delay. And that's the delay that you experience. And that does mean that if we broadcast the time pips in analogue, they'll arrive nearly instantaneously, but minus a little bit of processing in the radio station, obviously. But then there'll be a bigger delay for the digital because there's the additional steps that are involved in getting them out of the computer desk and across the airwaves and then through your digital radio at the other end and, and that's the processing delay. We have Tony from Westcliff on the line. Hello Tony. Good evening ma'am. Good evening. What's your question for Dr Chris? Well, there's a very interesting thing all about um, jet engines on television and the other but I still don't quite understand how they propel the aircraft along. Is it do they blast out the back or, or what? Hello, Tony. I suspect you're watching Rolls-Royce, one of our blue-chip yeah. British companies. Um, yeah. And Rolls-Royce don't just do cars. In fact, the, the big arm of Rolls-Royce is the engine, the jet engine. The, the cars are actually manufactured under licence by a different group. Rolls-Royce chiefly focus on aero engines and they make some of the best aero engines in the world uh -huh. and there was a program on BBC Two the other night which was looking at the technology the incredible technology that goes into the engines that Rolls-Royce build and I suspect that's what you're watching that was it yeah the way in which a jet engine works uh, Rolls-Royce tend to put it in three words because I was up at their uh, museum the other day they have a wonderful museum of aviation and the aero engine which is just wonderful to walk around it's up in Derby and they have this big blow-up of a, of a jet engine, and they say, basically, it's suck, squeeze, bang, 
blow. So there's sort of three or four processes going on here. At the front end of an engine is a very big set of fan blades. These draw in an enormous amount of air. Some of that air is squeezed down inside the engine through a system of progressively smaller turbines which compress the air very, very hard. And because it's being compressed very, very hard, it gets very, very hot, rather like you putting your thumb over the end of a bicycle pump and squeezing it, or identical to the way a diesel engine works. When a diesel engine has a cylinder full of air and the piston comes up, it squashes the air, it gets very, very hot, and then when the fuel is injected, it ignites. That's exactly what, a, what a, an aviation uh, jet engine does. You squirt fuel into that highly compressed, superheated air, the fuel burns very, very quickly, and this leads to a very big increase in volume of the gas because the temperature goes up and the energy of the gas molecules goes up and therefore the pressure of the gas molecules goes up therefore they try to expand they do that backwards out of the engine and this throws the air out the back of the engine at very high speed creating thrust but what it also does is it creates some rotary motion in the engine which is used to drive that fan at the front end and the fan at the front end isn't pushing all of the air through the engine. The fan at the front end is also pushing some of the air past the engine. So a lot of the air that the fan moves is also contributing to thrust. So the engine is effectively moving the plane in two ways. And that's basically how a jet engine works. Uh, would they work in space? Well, unfortunately not, because of course the engine is drawing in air and then throwing oh, that yeah. air out the back plus some more volume at very high speed. And if there's nothing for the engine to suck in, then <laughs> there's not much for it to throw out the back. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you, Tony. Very interesting. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, sir. Bye-bye. Let's go to our next one now. Now, thunderflies. Brian in Tiptree in Essex says, Where do the thunderflies come from in this weather? And why aren't they around any other time? They just seem to come in this time of year. That's from Brian in Tiptree in Essex. Chris. Well, there are several types of things around at this time of year that fly and land on us and make us itch. The thing we're calling a thunderfly is a thrip. And the other kind of thing that's around at the moment are lots of herbivorous little beetles. I know that Suffolk have had some problems with those in recent days. These are plant-consuming animals, and they would normally be sitting happily on crops. And the reason they take to the air is because if they have a population boom, because there's lots of them, and the food also ripens and they run out of it, then they start looking for other sources of food, so they take to the air. They're often attracted to bright colours or moisture, and so as a result, they end up landing on us. And because they're so tiny, they, of course, get into all those nooks and crannies in your clothing and everything, and they make you itch to death. I actually rang a colleague of mine called Ian Burgess, who is from a company called Insect Research, and they're based outside Cambridge. And I was asking him about the plague of little beetles in Suffolk, and, and he made some very interesting observations about why these things do tend to come in boom and bust cycles. And one of the points he made was that actually the cold winter could well have had a lot to do with it because many of these organisms pupate or hibernate in the soil over winter. And if you have a very, very cold winter, what that does is to reduce the metabolic rate of the organisms to such a low level that they hardly consume any energy. And as a result, they deplete their reserves in their bodies for hibernation only a tiny amount. So when they wake up the following season, they've got lots of energies to spare, which they then devote to vigorously eating and mating and reproducing, and you get a population surge. And the same is actually true for wasps and also bumblebees, which paradoxically, as it seems, do much better after a really cold winter than after a mild one. That, of course, is the recipe we've had this year, a very cold winter off the back of quite a moist year last year, which also would have uh, favoured 
uh, a large number of these things growing in the first place. So there would have been lots of, uh, lots of them hibernating or pupating in the ground. Dr Chris from The Naked Scientist is here to answer your questions. Uh, there's one or two questions that have come in. Uh, the first one, Dr Chris, is from Hedra, who says, um, can you ask Dr Chris if, whether it's necessary to drink six to eight glasses of water each day? Chris? I think this is a myth, actually. I'm not really sure where this got started from. The answer is you just need to drink as much water as you feel thirsty enough to want to drink. Um, research has shown that humans actually are amongst the best tolerators of heat and water management across the whole planet. We're much better than almost all other animals on Earth at managing our temperature, and that's partly attributable to uh, our evolution. Of course, we came from Africa. That's the cradle of mankind where modern humans were born, and people who lived in Africa, and still do, there are bush people, for example, who have to run... Uh, all day in the noonday sun, very, very, very hot, to run down game and catch their lunch. It takes them so long often to catch their lunch that it's breakfast by the time they catch it. But the point is that they have to uh, exercise in enormously high temperatures. And over many, many years of evolution, we've become extremely good at managing our temperature balance and managing our water balance. And so it's a myth that you have to drink all this water uh, when taking this kind of exercise. We're pretty resilient and robust as humans, and unless we're on drugs that mean that we're shedding water um, or, we're on, or we've got some other condition that means we handle water very, very poorly, it's better to just drink what you, th what you think you need um, rather than some prescribed amount, which might actually end up doing you more harm than good. All right, well, let's go to uh, the Twitter. Skychild says, uh, why are clouds and snow white when water is clear? What a brilliant question. It's Chris. Terrific question. The reason for this is that if you look at water, water is one homogeneous object. It's a liquid and it's got lots of molecules of H2O all stuck together by something called hydrogen bonds. But the water is one homogeneous body, if you like. And when a light wave comes from the air and goes into the water, light actually travels a bit slower in water. So when it goes into the water, it bends a bit. And as a result, this is why when you put your toothbrush underwater in the sink, it, it appears to bend and the end isn't where it looks like it is because the light waves that are coming to your eye have actually been bent by the water. Now, if you break the water up into lots of little bits, in other words, you turn it into lots of little water droplets as a cloud, or lots of little solid droplets as ice, now what you've got are lots of individual little blobs of water surrounded by air. When light goes into those, it slows down a bit and bends when it goes into the first droplet. It then comes out again into the air, which makes it speed up and bend a bit more. This is called refraction. And because there are so many of these particles, it keeps doing this. And it does it again and again and again. And in the end, all of the wavelengths of light, because remember that white light that we see from the sun is actually made up of many, many different wavelengths of different colours of light added together, which we see as white. All of those different wavelengths of light get reflected back at your eye because the light has been bent round so much and as a result it looks white because you're seeing all this light reflected at you. It's exactly the same reason actually that milk is white because in milk there are lots of little tiny particles of oil and protein and those particles do exactly the same thing. When the light goes into them it gets slowed down and bent a bit and then in the end, by doing this enough times, it reflects back at you all the wavelengths of light. And the other trick is when you pour a capful of Dettol into some clear water and it goes white because the Dettol produces lots of tiny little oily 
blobs in the water, and those tiny oily blobs do exactly the same thing, just like milk. The light goes in, into the water, into the oil particle, bending each time it does it, and eventually all gets reflected back at you, and that's why it looks white. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Bob in Essex, uh, Chris, is asking, why do birds have all the colours on their feathers and when oil gets on, watercolours appear uh, like a rainbow? Why is that? Yes, this is something we've looked at on The Naked Scientist. Actually, fairly recently, Dr Dave did a kitchen science experiment asking why are soap bubbles all the colours of the rainbow. This is something called structural colour. So let's take the oil on water first because that's probably the easiest way to understand this. When uh, a water surface has light hitting it, the surface of the water behaves partly like a mirror, and some of the light will be reflected from the surface of the water and back towards your eye, which is why water looks sparkly. Obviously, some light carries on into the water, but a proportion will be reflected back. If you put oil on top of the water, the oil spreads out and it forms a layer. The layer can actually be a number of atoms thickness thick. So, in other words, the oil can form layers on layers. When the light hits the oil layers, it can do exactly the same thing as it does when it just hits water. It can reflect. But as it passes through each layer, there can be an opportunity from each layer for it to reflect. So as the light bounces off of these layers of oil, in some cases it bounces off the top layer, in some cases it bounces off the layer underneath, and in other cases the layer underneath that. And the oil thickness is also not uniform on the water. Some places it will be thicker, some places it will be thinner. And when the light reflects in this way, some of the light waves will have travelled a longer distance further into the oil than others. And this means that when they rejoin each other, some of them will be what's called out of phase. In other words, the light wave will be going up and the other bit of the light wave will be going down. And this can make them cancel out. They could also be in phase, the light wave's going up and another one's going up and they add together, making a brighter spot of light. And depending upon what wavelengths are doing this, you see different colours. And because the oil thickness is not uniform, some bits of the oil are going to do this in the blue end of the spectrum more, some red, some yellow. So you see all these different colours as different wavelengths of light are principally amplified because of this so-called interference pattern. And that's exactly the same with a soap bubble. When you blow a bubble, the bubble is an oil film and it has different thicknesses of oil making up the surface of the bubble as, uh, and as that uh, bubble ages and water evaporates the oil film changes thickness again and this uh, this in turn affects the pattern of colors you see as dave shows in his kitchen science experiment if you want to have a look it's nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science it's on that page um now let's look at the birds well feathers pretty much do exactly the same thing the feathers are, have this very cl clever structure so that when light goes into the surface of the feather some of the light is reflected straight off others are reflected off of deeper structures in the feather and this causes the light waves to go out of phase with each other and interfere, cancelling some wavelengths out and making others look brighter. And this is what gives the bird feathers their colour. It's not a dye, it's structural colour.
Now, uh, let's go to the email again. This comes from Dave, and he says, If apes are omnivores and their diet consists mainly of fruit, leaves and buds, and we share 99% of genes with them, where in evolution did we become carnivores, and did the body have to suddenly adapt to this? Well, chimpanzees, who are one of our closest re- relatives, bonobos are actually closer to us than chimps are. We, we all share a common ancestor about six million years ago. Well, chimpanzees do eat meat, and in fact meat is a prized food item for them. The reason they value meat so much is that it's got enormous amounts of energy in it. It's got iron, which is important for muscle and brain, nerve cell, liver function, and it's got lots of protein in it. And for that reason it's highly valued and it's nutritionally extremely valuable to the body. Now humans have a very big brain and quite big stature, we're warm-blooded and we have a very big high metabolic rate. And in order to sustain us, we need to eat a varied diet and meat is a very helpful way to help us to achieve that. And for that reason, um, we have evolved to favour meat as an easy way to get some of these trace items, especially iron, that we need in our diet. And other animals like chimps do likewise, whilst some, such as gorillas, for example, bonobos eat fruit, um, they have become much more specialist at eating a herbivorous diet, a plant-based diet, and they've got six million years since we last shared an ancestor with them to have got good at it. And so it purely comes down to lifestyle and what evolution has equipped you with. So the answer is the lifestyle we lead, the way in which we chose to hunt and live, meant that we needed to get that high-energy food source, and meat was an easy way to do it. We were equipped with a big brain to help us catch animals and to prepare and cook and butcher them. Therefore, we eat them. Now, uh, David Worley, 94, has asked via Twitter, uh, where does earwax come from? Brilliant question. Indeed, and if anyone does want to tweet at us, you can send me a tweet if you want. It's at Naked Scientist, just to throw that in. Um, Earwax, the stuff that ends up on the end of your index finger when you wiggle it in your ear canal, uh, goes by the medical term cerumen, C-E-R-U-M-E-N. And this is a a very fatty substance. Um, It's a secretion which is produced by cells which line the external auditory canal. This is the bit that you put your finger in and runs all the way down to the uh, eardrum at the end of that. So there are cells in there that squeeze and squirt and splurge this stuff out. So in other words, the ear canal is lined by a thin layer of this, and its role is really to catch dirt and debris. And the material makes its way outwards, so the cells migrate out from the inner canal along the lining of the external auditory canal, carrying this wax with them, and the debris therefore gets stuck onto it and carried out from the ears. If this doesn't happen, of course, it can accumulate and block up the ear canal, and then you need to either dislodge it somehow, and carefully, of course, or you need that process of syringing, where they put something in to loosen the wax up, like olive oil is usually quite a common one. Um, And because the wax is is oily, the... uh, olive oil dissolves it quite well and then you can suck the whole thing out and in fact uh, earwax comes in two flavors if i can put it like that Mm -hmm. there's a dry kind and a wet kind Mm -hmm. this is genetic and you find people on earth geographically divide into these two types so people from the asian subcontinent have a very different style of earwax if you like from people from the western half of the earth um, and, and this is down to genes, and you can tell which a person has by testing their genes. I get well, there was a bit of both, actually. <laughs> who was um, 5,000 years old and, and discovered 
in Greenland, um, archaeologists actually did one of the first genetic reconstructions. In other words, taking the genes from a person, working out on the basis of the genes they carry what they would have looked like. And uh, S.K. Vilaslev, who's a researcher at the University of Copenhagen, published this in Nature about three or four months ago, where he was able to take uh, DNA samples from hair from this ancient person that lived in Greenland and from that DNA compare the DNA to traits in extant, in other words, existing human populations today, in other words, asking people who have these genes, what do they look like? And this enabled them to say that this individual who lived in Greenland all that time ago, he also had dry <laughs> wax, um, but also had black hair, I think was quite short, and had a tendency to baldness, unlucky for him. Uh, we've also got another question, Dr Chris, which um, comes via Twitter as well, from um, Alfie Stoppini. Um, why does his crisp packet inflate on a plane? This is assuming, of course, that the crisp packet hasn't been opened. And the reason for this is that inside the crisp packet is a little bit of nitrogen. So when the manufacturers of the crisps make the crisps, they, they are packed in a nitrogen atmosphere because nitrogen is very inert it's very hard to make nitrogen react with things and therefore it's an excellent gas for preserving things because it doesn't support metabolism so bacteria and fungi they can't use it to respire but at the same time it uh, provides padding around the food so the bag is kept semi-inflated which preserves the integrity of the food so your brittle crisps don't get crunched up but that nitrogen will be added to the bag at sea level-ish, and therefore the pressure will be about one atmosphere. When you go up in the aeroplane, though, the aeroplane cabins are pressurised, but they're not pressurised to sea level, they're pressurised to about 7,000 feet. And the benefit of that is that then it's a toss-up for the aeroplane between not putting too much pressure on the inside of the aeroplane, which would mean that the hull would have to be stronger and it would also be heavier and this would this would impact on uh, the economy of the aeroplane. So 7,000 feet is a good toss-up, but that means that the, feel, the crisp packet is now feeling a lower pressure in the environment around it, so the gas that was put into it, which occupied a certain volume at sea level, now feels less pressure pushing in from outside from the atmosphere, so it expands, and this is what makes the crisp bag swell up. And you might notice the same thing with bottles of mineral water, for example. If you were drinking from a bottle of mineral water up in the air and you put the top on, when the plane lands, the bottle is squashed almost flat, in some cases, when the plane lands, because the air pressure goes up and this applies increased pressure to the outside of the bottle. The gas inside uh, is at much lower pressure and, as a result, there's a net squash on the bottle. Now, let's go to uh, Mike, who asks, are we any closer to finding a cure for malaria? And while you're talking about it, what actually is malaria? Chris? Well, malaria is probably one of the worst infectious diseases in the world at the moment, in terms of sheer physical numbers. Uh, there are 500 million cases of malaria every year. 70% of those in children, so the vast majority of them affect young children, often fatally, and uh, the death toll is about 3 million a year. Again, 70 to 80% of those are children, children being a bit more vulnerable because they're just vulnerable anyway, they're smaller, and they haven't had chance to build up any partial immunity, which successive bouts of malaria will give you, and therefore they're more likely to succumb when they're little as a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Um, malaria is a parasite. Uh, it's a parasite that lives in the blood, so if you have someone who's suffering from malaria, and there are a number of different types, there are four different species of malaria, um, there are four different uh, families of malaria, but if you, uh, if you were to take a blood sample from someone who had malaria, 
what you see is this little tiny object which is inside the red blood cells. And a number, quite a high percentage, several percent of the red blood cells in someone who's seriously infected will actually contain these parasites. And they set up little factories inside the red blood cell where the parasite will mature. They break down the haemoglobin, which is inside the red blood cell, and use it for food. And in the process, they produce various waste products, which they dump out into the bloodstream. And the reason malaria is so bad is because it winds up the immune system, which is why you get a very bad fever. It damages red blood cells, making someone anemic, which is bad news as well. But also, it creates the, uh, the expression on the surface of the red blood cells of sticky molecules, a bit like cellular Velcro. So when these red blood cells are going through the circulation, they stick onto the sides of blood vessels. And if very large numbers of red blood cells get affected, then you can end up blocking up blood vessels. And this can happen more often in the brain and you get something called cerebral malaria, and it, it causes the equivalent of having a stroke almost. The pressure inside the head can go up and brain tissue can be harmed, and uh, it's a common reason why people die with malaria. In terms of treating it, there are some very good drugs. The best at the moment are artemisinin-based agents. Artemisinin is also known as um, Chinese um, wormwood, and uh, this herb, or natural remedy, grows a lot in China, hence the name. And uh, it turns out that it's got very potent anti-malarial activity. So there are a number of companies who are making anti-malarials based around that substance at the moment. But the real ho holy grail is to try and come up with a vaccine. And this has proved elusive up until now for various reasons. The parasite remains uh, well shielded from the immune system. It hides inside our own cells. And it's been very difficult to get a good enough response um, from the immune system to the parasite. And perhaps one reason for that is that the people who appear to be most vulnerable to infection with malaria, it turns out, may actually have an immune system that welcomes the parasite to a certain extent. The reason being, there was a paper published in one of the medical journals last year, PLOS, I think it was PLOS um, Pathogens or PLOS Medicine. They were able to show that uh, a number of um, children born to mothers who caught malaria when they were pregnant because those children were being exposed to antigens, in other words, the surface markers of malaria, while they were developing inside their mothers, the, the immune systems of these babies thought that these malarial markers were part of their own body, and so the immune system was programmed not to react to them. And as a result, when the children were born and then caught malaria themselves later, the immune system didn't respond very well to the malarial parasite because it thought it was friend, not foe. And so many of the casualties probably are amongst those risk groups in people who have this phenomenon going on. So that might be an additional challenge in making a vaccine work because many of the most at-risk individuals who we want to vaccinate may already have an immune system that doesn't really much dislike malaria. Is it difficult to diagnose? Very easy, actually, um, because you just take a blood sample and uh, look at it under a microscope and you can put a certain stain on or just in some cases just smear the blood across a microscope slide and put a cover slip on and look at it and you can physically see the parasites inside the red blood cells and, and uh, trained cytologists and pathologists um, laboratory workers in hospitals, um, they'll, they'll be examining in Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge many of these um, every year because when people return from the tropics with a temperature, the first thing we tend to think of is, well, have you excluded malaria? And looking down the microscope can often tell you all you need to know. Not always, but quite often. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. 
The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.